0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. Posted on May 29th, ninth, two thousand nine. I'm Steve Mursky. This week, we'll talk to Scientific American magazine editor in chief John Rennie about the contents of the new June issue. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. And so, without any further ado, here's Johnny. The June issue of Scientific American is is upon us. Yes, what is so rare as a day in June? Sometimes, uh, say a day in late May, maybe early July. That's right. But uh, we uh, we have something for the for the kitty lovers out there.
1: Yeah, kitty, kitty, kitty.
0: <laughs> in the current issue.
1: Yeah, kitty, 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 kitty.
0: Yes, that's the, right. The taming of the cat.
1: Yes. Bum bum bum. Yes, this is this is a story about the origins of
0: uh the the domestic house cat. And there are many millions of them across the country. Perhaps some of them are even listening to this podcast.
1: <laughs> indeed, but if they are listening, you know they're not going to take directions. No, they that's, won't. that's just
0: the way they are. So uh, this is a fascinating article. Now, for the dog people out there, rest assured, we have something for you in this issue as well, and we'll get to that. But let's start with the catas.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, what uh, this uh, article on the on the taming of the cat uh, concerns is uh, an, a new set of work based on genetic analyses of cats and also archaeological studies that are pushing back how early it looks like we actually started domesticating cats. The The old idea was that uh, domestication of cats probably started about 8,000 years ago back in uh, early Egypt, but uh, the, the latest evidence suggests that in fact it actually started a couple of thousand years before that, um, and, uh, and and so it as such it's really quite significantly revising the sense of, of how long we and cats have been having little households together.
0: We have a, a grave from Cyprus, was it, uh, that dates back about 9,500 years uh, that uh, that's right, that's there's r- a, a human being, and presumably the the pet cat buried in the same area yeah and in the same orientation right so that
1: tends to suggest that even then, as you say you know ninety five hundred years ago uh, that that people and their pets were seen as having you know a, a close a close enough connection that it was sometimes seen as appropriate that people and their pets would be would be buried together
0: now cats. As as the article says, they don't really do much for people. Right. Well, this is sort of an interesting issue, and it goes in some ways to kind
1: of your your definition of what's involved in domesticating an animal like a a, a cat. Because I think a lot of times when people think domesticating them, it means, you know, we went out and we took the original wild ancestors and we sort of broke them to our ways we you know did the equivalent of animal enslavement and you know we, we, the reality is all that domestication really means is that we took control of their bloodlines and uh, as such that they you know have, are used to living in in close concert with us but um but in fact the, uh, the the in this case the cats may have basically elected on their own to start living with us um, in fact this goes to sort of the the sense of how it is that the, the origins of the domestication of the cat seems to have started over in the Fertile Crescent and uh, basically right around the time that had the, the, the origins of agriculture. And, and it makes perfect sense because origins of agriculture, people starting to grow grain and stockpile it. Well, big surprise. If you stockpile grain, there is a very good chance that Mice and rats, other little vermin, will start trying to go after the stockpiles of the grain. And where there are mice, there soon will be cats. And so the cats basically came around to get the mice, and the people found that they were very helpful and sort of encouraged them to stay.
0: But other than that, I mean, as opposed to a dog, you can have hunting dogs. Mm-hmm. You can have uh what other services do dogs provide? Well, you know, that's
1: true. It's, it's, it's hunting. It's a different sort of sniffing, uh, companionship more generally.
0: Right. Um, you know, there are um, seeing eye dogs, right. for example, guides. Yeah. But uh, your cat, other than being a mouser, it's not gonna. It's not much of a a help around the house. No, that's true. Basically, and yet we love them. Yes, yes. we humans indeed we do. My, uh, my own cats have brought, I have two, mm-hmm. have brought in, and re- speaking of being, you know, mousers, uh, in the last month or so, they have brought home a mouse, a snake, we still have wild snakes in New York City, folks.
1: You, you live in the Bronx. I, I live so. in the Bronx,
0: which is very wooded in certain areas, actually, and my area is one, and, uh, so I, I stepped on something in the middle of the night recently, very lightly. Once my foot touched something that didn't feel like floor, I, I drew my foot up very quickly. And when I turned the light on, well, there was about a, uh, probably a foot and a half long snake in my house that one of the kites had brought in. And, uh, I brought this, I took the snake, which was still alive outside. I put him in some foliage and, uh, the next evening, he was back. <laughs> he was back in the base of my driveway and he was fully dead this time.
1: <laughs> Curtis, courtesy of the cats. You know, who, uh... the, well,
0: clearly one of the cats went back and mm. got him and brought him back, said, no, 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 this one's for me. And so we had the, uh, the, the mouse, the snake and a, uh, an unfortunate baby bird that no. had not, uh, that probably had fallen out of the nest first. Mm. Uh, that one I found on the uh, the floor of the kitchen, and it's breathing. No, and uh, so no, it's we, definitely not a slipper. Uh, it wasn't good. I, so we scooped that up and brought that outside as well. And uh, anyway, I'm sure everybody's fascinated, fascinated by the stories of my my cat's mousing and other critters' abilities. But you know, this is. This is what they do. This right. is, and their their concentration when it comes to these kinds of efforts is unbreakable. Yeah, it's much higher than when you try to get them to say pay attention to you.
1: <laughs>
0: Which I've never had any success, right? Because yeah. you are a dog guy. Well, currently yes, but I grew up with lots of cats too,
1: and uh, yes, cats cats they choose to spend their time with you. It's uh, it's very it's, all the old cliches about the differences between cats and dog people if you. Cat people need to be able to tolerate the fact that their beloved pet may show them very little obvious respect. affection or respect. <laughs> but then that's, that's what it's like being editor here. So, you know.
0: So, uh, the cats became part of the human family, if you will. Uh, and, and they, um, they're they're clearly descended from wild cats, though. That's right. And that all happened pretty rapidly. Yes, that's right. It is, it's also interesting is that they also
1: are all of the the common house cats are descended from one population of wild cats. I mean, you can find different kinds of wild cats scattered across much of the old world, different parts of Africa and Asia and and Europe. There are a lot of different uh, wild cat populations, but all of the domesticated cats we see today came from one kind of wild cat that just uh, was found in the the fertile crescent which tells us something very significant about the fact of how much the spread of the cats thereafter came along with the sort of the rise and extent of the, the spread of civilization and uh, so we have ourselves to thank for that Yes, that's right. And the cats, in a sense, they have us to thank for it too, but they will show no gratitude.
0: They, it's just not in them. No. As I said, I promised we have something for the dog people out there. And we, we have a, a short article in the front of the magazine where we have the news pieces about the the amazing physical capabilities – of high performance sled dogs, right? And in particular, one Larry, who is uh, Larry the
1: sled dog, who is uh, who is a master at uh, winning the uh, the Iditarod,
0: which is the fantastically grueling dog sled race. It's it's such an amazing calorie burner running this thing for the dogs. A fifty pound dog will consume twelve thousand calories a day which is just slightly more than I do.
1: <laughs> now, <laughs> We've been meaning to speak to you about that, Steve.
0: Now, that's, a, that's an enormous energy intake. It's a, You almost have to eat either just solid sticks of butter or be eating constantly. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when Michael Phelps,
1: back around the time of the uh, the Olympics, they were talking about the the gigantic quantity that he took in. And I'm not sure that he was even eating 12,000
0: calories a day. I don't remember the specific number, but I think it was approaching 12,000, right. but not quite. Yeah. So, I mean, it's understandable
1: why it is that some of the physiologists who are really interested in trying to understand this sort of Extreme physical performance, uh, would naturally look at something like these sled dogs because they're clearly, they've got some extraordinary ability to be able to, to, uh, have the kind of the stamina and the ability to be able to keep drawing the, the energy out of what they're eating efficiently so that they can keep going through the, these fantastically grueling
0: conditions. And not surprisingly, it appears that some of them have just an unbelievable concentration of mitochondria. Yeah. in the muscles of their legs. Right, which is what you'd expect because, of course, mitochondria
1: are what are, are responsible for being able to to release the chemical energy uh, that fuels muscle action. But what was really interesting in the studies of, uh, of the, the, the sled dogs, and Larry the sled dog in particular, was the discovery that some of these, uh, the, the, these uh, high-performance dogs appear to have the ability to draw fat, Directly out of their blood and right into their muscle cells and immediately burn it that way, which is a more efficient way than, than normally what you'd see. Which is storing it first in the liver and then recovering it. Exactly. Uh, so basically they've cut out a step and they're able to, uh, you know, therefore draw on, on food that they've very recently consumed. So, I mean, this is an amazing adaptation and, uh, and so it, it, they're really trying to understand what's going on with this because what is fascinating about it is that this may not just be a, a simple um, a trait that has evolved in these dogs, in effect, because of the, the extreme conditions in which they uh, had, to, had to perform. It may actually be a latent uh, quality that lots of, of mammals maybe even people, might actually have if you can coax it out of them under the right kinds of high-performance conditions. So it's very interesting to look at something like that to see, are there any kinds of circumstances in which it's possible uh, for a a super high-performance athlete to start to
0: do the same kind of thing? Yeah, these dogs were tested every few miles. They would have tiny little uh, pieces of their muscle. Uh, biopsied basically Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe we need to do that with ultra marathoners people go out and run 50 60 miles at a clip yeah it's understandable why people wouldn't be lining up for those kinds of experiments but uh... the 60 mile run isn't going to be bad enough (laughs) every five miles we're going to poke you and rip out parts of your leg muscles (laughs) little tiny parts but but hey and uh also for your dog people uh we won't get into it in much detail but my column in this issue the anti-gravity column uh, I, I suggest a modest proposal, if you will, that, uh, in order to answer some of the, the, uh, charges of creationists that evolution, there's no proof of evolution. We never saw any speciation in action actually happen. Well, why, why don't we just say that different dog breeds are different species? Because as Jerry Coyne, evolutionary biologist says in his book, uh, why evolution is true. If an extraterrestrial taxonomist came to mm-hmm. Earth and uh, looked at the fossil remains of many of the different breeds of dog that we all consider a single species, there's no way he would categorize them as a single species. And as I say something to the effect that, you know, come on, if you're, if you're talking about fertile interbreeding, the only way a Chihuahua, male Chihuahua and a female Great Dane are going to have any success is if the Chihuahua invests in either mountain climbing or spelunking equipment, <laughs> and we'll we'll leave it at that. And uh, there's another uh, interesting feature, and not just one, but just one more that we'll talk about. The Scientific American Ten appears in this issue. Uh, it's uh with everything else in our economy it's shrunk down from used to be the scientific American fifty but now we're at the scientific American ten it's much more efficient. we're going for a leaner, more efficient scientific American n right. where now n equals ten <laughs> so tell us what the scientific American ten represent and we'll talk about some of the honorees this year. Sure.
1: The Scientific American 10 is an honor roll we put together in which we try to salute certain people who have uh, taken extraordinary steps to try to make sure that uh, n- new scientific and uh, technological developments seem like they would be in service to trying to generally improve the, the lot of mankind in various ways. Um, and these are people who in some cases are researchers, but in other cases they are industrialists or uh, government uh, workers or uh, the leaders of uh, uh Nonprofit, non-governmental organizations. So you know, we want to recognize the fact that uh, basically, science and technology advances, and particularly advances in in beneficial ways, not just through the efforts of scientists themselves, but through efforts of people from every part of society.
0: So, uh, in addition to the fact that I haven't heard the word industrialist used outside of a Batman comic book recently, <laughs> Bruce uh, Wayne is not a winner this year, but perhaps next year. Who are who are some of our SIAM 10 or Scientific American 10 winners.
1: Well, for example, uh, one one of the people who I guess would fall into the category of industrialist, mm-hmm. thanks for bringing it up, uh was, is is Shai Agassi. Yeah, this so, is really interesting stuff. Yeah, and I think this is a very really fascinating example. Uh, uh, Shai Agassi is the uh the founder and CEO of of a uh a company uh, that is called Better Place that is involved in trying to uh, develop a new model for introducing uh, electric cars, making electric cars uh, more practical. You know, the traditional problem, the, the sort of the big roadblock, if you will, about what, what stopped a lot of electric car development from going forward uh, as you know, is that the, the batteries are a big limiting factor. The, the, the batteries you need for an electric car tend to be very, very expensive. And most battery technology is such that you can have a fairly limited, uh, mileage you, uh, that you would actually be able to associate with the cars. They would not be able to go as far as people can, let's say a full tank of gas. Those tend to discourage people from being interested in a lot of, of electric cars. Uh, uh, Agassi Agassi is, is proposing a new model, a new business model that would get around some of that. Because in effect, when you would buy an electric car, you would not buy the battery. The battery would be something you would, in effect, be sort of leasing or renting um, from his service. And as you're driving down the road and you notice that your battery is running down, you would pull over into one of his service stations where you would have the option of perhaps recharging. But more importantly, you would be able to swap the battery out and bring put in a brand new Uh, fully fully charged charged battery so that gets you right past the whole limitation of whether or not the battery um is actually going to be uh run out of juice or what kind of capacity that it might have is um so it's it's a radical new way of thinking about all of that and it's something that is being tested in uh, israel i believe maybe a a couple of other places uh and it it may be something that may make uh, electric
0: cars much more practical the amazing thing that he's accomplished is actually getting people on board to build these battery exchange stations so that there is this nascent network. Of there's an infrastructure to enable this whole concept to go forward. Right. I mean, infrastructure really is the
1: key in a lot of these things. But in some ways, that goes to the, the really creative, novel way of thinking about this. A lot of us in the past, looking at the problems of electric cars, have seen it as purely a technological problem. But here, they're recasting it and showing the right kind of infrastructure, the right kind of business model, the right kind of, of other systems that are not specifically technological can completely change the game on that. Yeah. Who else do we have in here? Well, um, certainly, you know, a couple of other people that that we really salute for the wonderful work that they're doing are um, two two fellows you might have heard of, uh, Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg. They uh, have uh, have recently uh, proposed to uh, put together this uh three hundred and seventy five million dollar global anti smoking initiative. Um, everybody recognizes that smoking is the leading cause of preventable deaths and uh, lots of other of uh, problems. With the disease around the world, um, so there are tremendous benefits uh, globally that could be uh, had by by discouraging people from smoking. Um, and so here you have a case of, of a couple of billionaires who are using a portion of uh, their money to try to uh, to fuel these sorts of anti-smoking efforts. So that's uh, something with potentially huge uh, uh, health, good health consequences.
0: Yeah, Bloomberg's actually pretty interesting on public health. And I know that he's uh he's given so much money to Johns Hopkins that the School of Public Health is the Bloomberg school wow so mm-hmm. i'm sure that I'm sure that wasn't cheap <laughs> and uh <laughs> I see we're, we're giving a little nod to our friend Eugenie Scott here, who's been on the podcast a few times.
1: Sure. Eugenie Scott uh, from the National Center for Science Education, who's done wonderful work for years in trying to make sure that evolution is taught appropriately in uh, public schools and uh, to try to discourage uh, the teaching of creationism under any of its various guises as a kind of uh, bad scientific alternative to that. Um, so we thought that was wonderful because, of course, good science education is really that cornerstone for all future scientific and uh, technological development. So uh, we're really glad to uh, be able to recognize her for that work. Um, uh, someone else that we think is, is did some wonderful work is uh, a professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, uh, Robert Linhart. Um, he was in Involved, You may remember, uh, from last year there was the, uh, uh, the, the unfortunate scandal involving tainted heparin. Heparin is a blood thinner, um, and it, uh, an anti-clotting agent, uh, and it, uh, it, it turned out that, uh, some, some heparin that was on the market, uh, turned out to be contaminated and it had, uh, come from, uh, from China. Uh, Linhart, uh, his, one of his great contributions in this case was that he was able to do the sort of the forensic detective work in tracking that back and to demonstrate exactly where it was that the contamination, uh, came in so it could be identified and, uh, try to protect people that way. But what's also great is that, that Linhart has actually been involved in trying to, uh, develop a, a, a completely, uh, synthetic source of uh, of heparin so that uh, potentially in the future you can avoid all of these kinds of, of uh, contamination
0: problems so there's the scientific american 10 that's only 3 or 4 of them mm-hmm. uh we uh we have a few more. Brian Wilson, not of the Beach
1: Boys. No, that's right. That's right. Uh, uh, Brian Wilson, this Brian Wilson, uh, is actually a professor of mechanical engineering at Colorado State University. And uh, he's he's been doing a lot, a lot of great things about s- uh, simple new kinds of technologies that can um, greatly improve some of the, the sorts of uh, technologies that are very commonly used in lots of the developing world. For example, there are lots of these little two-stroke engines that are used on... For example, motorcycle taxis. It's a very common uh, source of engine. They're very, they're very, very uh, polluting. Um, he's developed. He and his team have developed a kit that can be sort of uh, retrofitted onto these uh, to make them uh, much, much better, much more efficient than they are. And uh, similarly, he's also been involved in. Uh, developing a new kind of, of little cook stove that uh, that also greatly uh, cuts the emissions that come off of these sort of wood burning cook stoves and and actually makes these stoves uh, more efficient they heat up food faster so you know real really great beneficial things and they're not glamorous but they are on the kind on, the, on their hand the sorts of things that hugely improve the the qualities of the lives in in other parts of the world and that of course are very beneficial to the environment which ultimately benefits everybody
0: you know you say they're not glamorous one of the things that Tom Friedman pointed out in his book, Hot, Flat and Crowded, is that when we're really getting into the innovation of new, energy efficient, non-polluting things, it's going to be real boring. <laughs> and, and I think the listeners will, will agree that we, we've shown that that's really true. <laughs> but, but seriously, no, it's great stuff. And, and, Yes, it's not glamorous. It's nuts and bolts. It's important. There's a lot of hard work involved. It's you know, Simon Cowell doesn't care about this stuff. Is that his name? Simon Cowell. From American Idol? Yeah. Yes. Is it Cowell? Yes. And back to Bruce Wayne. But right. now, let me let me just uh wrap up our little discussion of the June issue. As uh as you know, I'm a big fan of the fifty, one hundred and one hundred and fifty years ago column that uh, we keep in the front of the book. Who, who isn't a fan? Who isn't? Yes. And I'd like to share something with you from 50 years ago. this A, a month.
1: mere 50
0: years ago so this is 50 time. years ago, June of 1959. Mm-hmm. And uh, in June of 1959, we wrote, The problems of eating and drinking under weightless conditions in space, long a topic of speculation among science fiction writers, are now under investigation in a flying laboratory. Preliminary results indicate that space travelers will drink from plastic squeeze bottles and that space cooks will specialize in semi-liquid preparations resembling baby food. According to a report in the Journal of Aviation Medicine, almost all the volunteers found that drinking from an open container was a frustrating and exceedingly messy process. Under weightless conditions, even a slowly lifted glass of water was apt to project an amoeba-like mass of fluid onto the face. Drinking from a straw was hardly more satisfactory. Bubbles of air remained suspended in the weightless water, and the subjects ingested more air than water. And uh, just 50 years later, astronauts just last week drank their own recycled urine in space out of squeezable kinds of, you know, plastic bag kind of things, but a couple of big circular globs of, of the... Perfectly potable drinking water now did get loose and I saw some astronauts on television just sort of floating over and, you know, revolving their head around and just catching that globule of water. Slurping that up? Right. Well. well. And, uh, we've, in only 50 years, we've gone from experimenting with how we're going to eat and drink in space to actually recycling the astronauts own urine so that they could drink it in space. That's one small step for a man. One giant leak for mankind. Check out the other articles in the June issue, including the cover piece on the recent discoveries of improbable planets around unlikely suns. All the articles are available free for nothing for a limited time at the website scientificamerican.com. Now it's time to play totally bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story 1, the recycled water the astronauts drank wasn't just recovered from urine. The purification system also took in sweat and the water vapor in exhaled air. Story 2, on May 20th, Scott Parazinski became the first shuttle astronaut to twitter from space. Story 3, on May 29th, the International Space Station population reaches six for the first time with the arrival of three new astronauts. And story four, the bacteria in your armpits are probably more similar to the bacteria in somebody else's armpits than to the bacteria on your own forearms. Time's up. Story four is true. Different kinds of bacteria prefer different environments on your skin, so your forearm and armpit bacteria will probably differ vastly, but your armpit bacteria won't differ that much from somebody else's armpit bacteria. The research appeared in the journal Science, and on the May 29th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. Story one is true, the astronauts' recycled drinking water came from urine, sweat, and exhalations. No wonder the water had that certain tang... And story three is true, the ISS population for the first time reaches six, and for the first time five different space agencies are represented. For more, read John Matson's article on the Scientific American website entitled Space Station Population About to Double. All of which means that story two about Scott Parazinski becoming the first astronaut to Twitter from space is totally bogus. Because what is true is that on May 20th, Parazynski, who last flew in space in 2007, Became the first astronaut to reach the summit of Mount Everest. A place to definitely avoid any giant leaps. When you push your nose. Well that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news including Jesse Baring's mind and brain blog item on why girls are so cruel to each other and our slideshow on the top 10 earth and people friendly buildings. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. So go and make